0: If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Move this farther down. So, just a quick recap where we are in the book. so we're still in the middle of a series of judgments that have been revealed to John as a series of seven trumpets that each blast out of one of these trumpets unleash horrific destruction upon sinful earth. Um, we noted that just as God had done with the Egyptians that God sovereignly unleashed these plagues and that's the word uh, that John uses in Revelation to describe these events to bringing in mind that Exodus event that God is, is unleashing these plagues upon sinful earth dwellers who just like Pharaoh in the Exodus account have stubbornly refused to repent and choose to persist in their idolatry and immorality as John describes it. Uh, last week we we started into chapter 10 and we uh, describe this as a pause or sometimes it's described as a parenthesis in the middle of the of this trumpet judgment so we've had the first six we still haven't had the seventh the seventh one comes at the end of chapter 11 but in the midst of this pause we move from reading about uh, the severe judgments and they really were severe as we saw them in, in chapters 8 and 9 into the process that we saw last week in chapter 10 of God preserving His prophetic witness on the earth and God's uh, holding forth revelation to humanity, and we saw this in the, especially at the end of the chapter in this recommissioning of John as prophet and the symbolic action of him uh, eating this word that's uh, sweet on his lips but bitter in his stomach. Today, the, the sort of pause continues for the first part of chapter 11, and we still, the emphasis is still on that witness uh, in the midst of a sinful earth. The, the, uh, the emphasis is still on God's sending forth this word of prophetic judgment um, before the end. So today, we see how that witness testifies against a world that in turn hates it, um, and how this world ultimately triumphs for a brief time uh, by tramping underfoot God's witnesses. Um, but like other New Testament descriptions of Christ's second coming, the section ends with a dramatic vindication of God's witnesses through resurrection, which causes sinful earth threat to fearfully acknowledge God's glory. So with that as a a word of introduction, let me read for us um, Revelation chapter 11. And I'm actually only going to read through verse 13 because I think realistically that's probably as far as we're going to get today. Um, I could surprise, we could surprise ourselves, but um, there's a lot in these first 13 verses. So Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, thus far, the Word of God, Uh, let's go before Him and ask Him to um, bless its hearing in our hearts. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who reveals things to his people, that you are not a silent God, a God who created all things and then remained distant from it, but that you are a God who speaks to your people, who has given your people a word, indeed have given us the word, your Son, Jesus Christ, as a living revelation in our midst. Lord God, as we study the words uh, that John has uh, preserved for us. Uh, We confess our own uh, sinfulness and our own inadequacy. If we have difficulties studying the book of Revelation, the problem lies not with the book, but with us, and particularly that we don't know your scriptures well, that we are for the most part ignorant of them, and therefore the words we read sound foreign and strange And weird to us. Lord God, it's only through uh, your Spirit that we can have eyes to see and ears to hear. And we ask that you would speak to us this day, that you would plant this Word in our hearts, that it would produce fruit in our lives, that we would be a people willing to witness to your coming kingdom even though the world hates us, despises us, and seeks to kill us for that message. But we look forward, as we especially this week, uh, thinking about the resurrection of your Son, that He was willing uh, to die for us, that He showed His love for us even to the point of death, and that you, after three days, raised Him up. That is our great hope, and that is the great hope of your church. Give us a glimpse of that hope now in the revelation of John, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week we ended with John having this prophetic action, this interaction in this heavenly scene where uh, he reaches out and takes a, a book from the strong angel's hand and consumes it. Um, as prophets of old were depicted as taking scrolls of judgment and consuming them and then uh, being a physical symbol of how they would consume God's word and then repeat it to the people. Uh, Our chapter today starts with sort of a similar prophetic action. This time, um, John is given a measuring rod like a staff and told to go and measure the temple. So what's the purpose of this action? What does it mean for John to measure the temple? What does this action indicate? Don't all speak at once. <laughs> James.
1: Can I ask another? Isn't this of the destruction
0: of the temple? if we, again, you get different arguments. So some people say this is written before the destruction of the temple and therefore what we're giving here is a description of the temple before it was destroyed in 70 AD. So people argue for an early date for the book of Revelation. The traditional date is much later so that it would be after the destruction of the temple. So uh, depending on what perspective um, or way you Place the writing of the book. Either there is a physical temple present in Jerusalem, or there's not. <laughs> um, so that's a great question to think about uh, uh, this temple. Is it a real temple? Is it a you know a spiritual temple? What? It, so we I think we have to. It forces us to think about what does a temple mean? What would be the point of measuring out a temple? What does that symbolize? Um, what, and then we can get into is it a real temple or not. But I think first, John wants us to think about, what does it mean to even do these actions? What would his audience, would, when they heard here, John is measuring the temple, what does that mean?
1: Well, I don't have a clue as to why he's measuring the temple, but I do remember from the scriptures that God gave very specific measurements and directions for making So, it sounds like
0: some kind of a checking out to see if it's According to code or the way it was supposed to be, or I don't know. Okay, so as we think about, um, you know, especially the, the tabernacle, but also with the temple that David built, you know, these structures are built according to very specific measurements. Um, they, and, and those specific measurements emphasize the reality of these structures. So that's one sense of measuring from the scriptures. Good. It feels like because there's an error So we have this sense of, and he's specifically told to, to measure out. Um, so if we take the the inner's good, the outer's bad, he's being told just to measure the inner. You know, don't worry about the outer part where the bad ruffians are, but to to, to measure out the inner sanctum of this temple yeah,
1: Bill. they say if you can of express it in numbers you don't know it so this is knowledge of
0: something yeah and it really s- it speaks to the certainty of it um, and I think and this goes back to James's question about is it a, an existing temple or is this a, a vision of a temple that no longer exists the closest um, uh, similar passage to this is in prophecy of Ezekiel, the last eight chapters, Ezekiel has a vision. He's taken from exile back to Israel and he sees has this vision of Jerusalem restored and an angel measuring out a temple, a temple at that moment that doesn't exist. But Ezekiel for eight chapters (laughs) sees this angel systematically measuring out every part of a temple that at that moment is gone. You know, it's been wiped out. The people that dwelt there are gone. Um, Ezekiel has to go back, and he sees this vision of this new temple. And the promise is uh, there in Ezekiel that um, God's future presence will dwell among a restored people who've been purified. Um, so it's, this eschat- it's both a vision of Israel's going to return, but it's also this eschatological vision of this ultimate dwelling in the presence of God forever, a purified community that's been restored by God and is blessed by God's enduring presence. And just as Bill says, the measuring out of it emphasizes the certainty. Uh, this is something that can be measured. And as Bill says, you know, that that emphasizes for us that it's real. That you can take the dimensions of this kind of thing. It's interesting that it says he measures the temple and the altar and those who worship it. So, does feel like he's counting or measuring the people as well as the building. And do you think that those people are Christians or, you know, Jews? Like, are these Christians that are worshipping some... You know, church like temple, or are these Jews that are worshiping at the traditional temple? I think the way John has been using, um, uh, or his repeated descriptions of the church as priest unto God, I think that, um, so I think it's referring to the, the, um, Presence, the secured presence of God's people in this temple. Now, the other thing we need to keep in mind is, um, as we think about what this temple is, is that later in the book, um, uh, John says he sees no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem for the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. And we think of that New Testament description of Jesus saying, you'll see this temple destroyed and in three days I'll rebuild it. And you know what? It took 46 years to build this temple. So that the lightning of Jesus' body to a temple. So to think about that in a Christian um, perspective that John is using here, is he speaking of a, a temple that has secured the spiritual well-being of those people that are in this kingdom of priests. Um, again you know, there's an enormous spectrum um, on how we interpret this temple from it's a literal temple filled with literal Jews in the f- distant future it's a literal temple filled with Jews from the past that temple in AD 70 that got destroyed um, it's a uh, spiritual figure of this this future time in which uh, the Jews will be brought back, so it was sort of same thing applying it to the Jews, but now saying it doesn't have to be a literal rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, but that this is sort of a spiritual image that God has created this space for ethnic Israel to be um, preserved and, and to be saved, and then you get um, a host of of different interpretations that say that this is the church. Um, and and one of the things, I think, um, that's especially um, of those, the, the last, uh, applying it to the church, to, to emphasize um, the, the inner and the outer that we have going on here. The inner is protected. You know, being measured out in this is the same kind of idea of sealing the saints that we saw in that last pause. That we have this measure of protection being given to to some. But then you also have this outer place where persecution takes place. And to see those things as simultaneous. Um, So it's this sort of, you know, again, the, the now and not yet when we, at this moment, as believers in Christ, are in a heavenly temple that we cannot be touched. <laughs> at the same time, we're in a world that hates us and persecutes us and rejects us and seeks to destroy us. It's not two different realities. It's two realities existing side by side. And the temple being depicted here is the same. There's this inner court... Our existence, where we can't be touched, and this outer court, where we interact with a world that tramples us. Um, Again, that's something to to really sort of push us on, sort of thinking about um, how we witness to the world, because I think the main emphasis of this is on that, you know, it's gonna, the, the temple that's being described here is the place of witness. Um, the emphasis is going to shift from you know, with all this measuring, it's going to shift the, to the role of these two witnesses and what they're doing. So the, the temple is being described as the place where this activity takes place. Um, so the I like that last interpretation because it emphasizes um, the role of security and certainty that's being described by the measuring out of this temple, but also you know, the major theme of this section which is the church's interaction with the world and how the world reacts to that witness. What is
1: the
0: traditional with the Adler courts? So that's where the Gentiles. So Gentiles would be allowed into the outer courts. Um, and for the second temple uh, the emphasis was Gentiles who were God-fears um, were admitted. So the outer court, you know, sort of is this place, I mean, you sort of see the outer court as this place where the inner sanctum and the outer world interact. Um, no, it doesn't feel that way here. Um, oh, well, the interaction doesn't seem positive, maybe that's, um, you know, because the word that gets used uh, twice in this um, chapter, um, they will trample. You know, we get it in verse 2, and then we get it later on. um, uh, uh, Let's see, where is it? their bodies will lie in the street of that great city where the Lord was crucified. Um, the word trample shows up somewhere in there. Uh, well, it's in verse 2, but it shows up later in the traple, chapter. Trampling shows up. Uh, I'm missing it right now. But cha- trampling shows up twice in this chapter. And maybe it's not in the ESV, but um, the word was there twice. Uh, but the idea is uh, this, you know... You have this distinction between the inner and the outer, and the outer wants to trample at the inner, uh, to go back to your sort of good-bad description. Um, yeah, Mike. Actually,
1: just
0: a <laughs> So that, so from your elbow to your wrist is a cubit. Um, No, and that, I think, um, you know, the measuring that's going on here, uh, I think it's significant that we're not given specific dimensions. If you look at Ezekiel, the Ezekiel visionary temple is is pretty large. (laughs) And it's, um, well, I I might defer to the engineers we have in the room, but to me it seems structurally unsound. (laughs) you know it's sort of described as getting wider the higher up you go (laughs) you know um, it's it's the vision he has isn't of you know right (laughs) structural soundness isn't his concern Um, the emphasis is on the you know what the what takes place the enormity of of this space where this purified community is going to be in God's presence. Again, that's the chief reason for having a temple, is the temple is the visible sign of God's presence among his people. And again, so if we keep that in mind here, here we have this measuring out, there is a, you know, God's presence visible um, to his people. I think the were supposed to also
1: figure out the part but, you know, it seems like they were Around the bush is not saying Jerusalem, right? Yes, it's, you know, it's calling it the holy city, place where the temple is, but it's called, you know, Sodom or Egypt, you know. Why isn't it, why isn't it the place where the Lord was crucified? You know, there are all these references to the city without it calling
0: it Jerusalem, and in fact, calling it Sodom or Egypt. Right? Yeah, so so two things there on cities. So we have two cities mentioned, and or two different descriptors. So in verse 2 it's called the holy city and then later on in verse 8 it's called the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So, are these two different cities? Are these descriptors of the same city? Is this a literal Jerusalem, or is this the way, um, sort of the kind of corporate sense, you know, like um, Peter's speech in Acts, where he he talks about, you know, he addresses his audience and says, "You crucified Christ." Um, you know, it doesn't have to mean the very people there, but you know, they are representatives of that city. Um, is it a physical city? Or is this kind of a a global city. Um, You know, as we look at it, you know, uh, the citizens of this city are rejoicing all over the earth. Um, So it seems to have sort of a global citizenry. Uh, Verse 10, all those who dwell on earth will rejoice over these dead bodies laying in the streets, the dead witnesses. So, uh, yeah, that sort of gives it, you know, um, kept thinking of the story Star Wars movies, where there's one planet as an entire city. I know that's weird, but you know, but it's that kind of it's the idea of citizens of a global city, um, and that's you know we're going to see that kind of warring of two cities later in the book, you know, the Harlot, the city of Babylon, and this coming New Jerusalem. Um, yeah, but here is it referring to? Or what does it mean to be? Uh, Part of the city. Um, This holy city, what do you think? Holy city, great city, same city, different cities. What comes to my mind is that Jesus was crucified outside the city. So I wonder
1: if Sodom and Egypt represent outside.
0: Okay, so they represent, you sort of have um, the city, the holy city, and everything else, you know, sort of, you know, to be, not be in the holy city is to be in that other city, to be out. So, holy city, preserved, protected. Great city, horrible. <laughs> That's where Christ is crucified. That's Sodom. That's Egypt. What else do I need to say? James. You know, like the battle, right, in the city. You know, they try to, you know, reach their own way. Like heaven, you know, the small institute of all of humanity
1: gather in one spot, that and they're bad. you know, it goes on, you know, sort of babble and babble on, right? Which just going to appear in the next couple of chapters.
0: Yeah, with a similar kind of objective to that first city of Babel. Um, This rejection of God and the sort of cooperative cooperative rejection of God so it's not just some individual city um, it's the collective uh, the entire earth is sort of being unified in the city in opposition to God I mean, this is where Augustine you know in his you know, the city of God versus the city of man you know these two tale of two cities um, that you know that this is where he's getting that, that language uh, the language of opposition and that seems to be the emphasis here, is on the opposition between uh, these witnesses and those members of this great city.
1: Resonates with our, you know, experience of humanity
0: evolving beyond the God. Yeah, uh, the rejection uh, that you know, don't don't need, the help. Don't need it. Um, yeah, I, it, again, it's, um, yeah, I've said it before, it's, I think people in every age sort of can find themselves in the book, and that's where I was really sort of finding man, I mean, does this not talk about Christianity in, in the West and, and how, you know, just the act of we, you know, God is a crutch, we don't need that kind of belief to hold us up, you know. Uh, just outright re- rejection, not just of God, but of the very concept of God. Um, the other courts of the temple, right, for the Gentiles to come in, uh, you know, to, to be part of this... To be brought near. ...brought into the, the chosen... all kinds of, again, if we see it, the sort of triumphing of the world over the church, notice how short that is compared to the length of, you know, the witnesses testify for uh, 1260 days or three and a half years, um, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, three and a half years. The death of these witnesses three and a half days. So, you know, you have this preservation of God's faithful witness uh, through these two witnesses for three and a half years versus the triumph. You know, they think they've won, but it's for three and a half days of this kind of, you know, the church is dead, God is dead, it was all false and then... Yeah, you know, they they realize otherwise. <laughs> Much to their own fear and terror. Um, but let's turn to these uh, these witnesses. Um, so, who are these? How do we understand these two witnesses? Who are these two witnesses? What do they sound like? Or who do they sound like? this
1: John the Baptist. Okay.
0: All right, so uh, um, John the Baptist putting on sackcloth, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who else? we got some other prophets I think are being alluded to, but that's, yes, yeah, Not so much prophets, but uh, the symbolism of um, sending out the spies in numbers uh, Caleb
1: and Joshua come back and they're the only two that want to go, go forward.
0: Um, Okay, so as we think about um, other times where we've had sort of scouts or witnesses, the sort of faithfulness of two witnesses, uh, and I think the number two especially is really significant. Uh, yeah,
1: Mike. Well, I guess these guys can go back the uh, rainfall, and so it kind of reminds us of the line.
0: Okay, so we've got an Elijah kind of figure. So we got the you know, little John the Baptist, the little Elijah. Who else? Elijah um,
1: there.
0: Yeah. Um, who, who do we think of as turning uh, water into blood? Moses. So sometimes you get, you know, the Elijah and Moses. Think of transfiguration, who shows up. Elijah and Moses. So sometimes we get two witnesses identified these are kinds of personifications of an Elijah and Moses. Um, And to really think of both, I was thinking about this, um, why would why, why connect these two witnesses to Elijah and Moses. i say about both of those men testifying in the presence of, of political opposition. You know, Moses, you know, if we think of Moses' prophetic ministry really in the midst of Egypt, let my people go. Um, no, it was Mary sent Dana this great thing this week called the Google, the Google Exodus. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's showing the, Exodus account through all these like high-tech things. So like Moses shooting Pharaoh an email, let my people go. <laughs> Pharaoh responding, no, sit for my iPhone. Um, I think that was my favorite part. Um, but that, so you got Moses prophesying to Pharaoh, you know, you know the political opposition, you know, Elijah the same way. Before Ahab and Jezebel, you know, actively seeking to put him to death, faithfully standing alone against this host of the prophets of, of Baal, you know, you know, we think of both of those men giving their words in the face of massive political uh, opposition. What else? Two witnesses. When we hear two witnesses in the scripture. What else? Do we think. Yeah, George. sometimes we get people, these two instances are the word and the spirit or the Old and New Testament. Um, There's a passage in um, Zechariah, which is sort of a similar kind of vision of the restored temple that talks about the faithful witnesses. Um, Both um, The Zechariah passage refers to two specific faithful witnesses, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, Joshua being the spiritual leader of a restored Israel and the high priest and Zerubbabel. Being the political leader in this restored Israel. Um, so you get that kind of identification, and Zechariah also sort of talks about the word is, you know, is the, the witness in this temple. Yeah, Jerry. Throughout
1: the scriptures, um, witnesses are not considered true, or the facts are not considered true unless you have two or three witnesses.
0: Yeah, you have to have two witnesses to enact the death penalty. Um, You have to have two witnesses to authenticate a matter. Uh, That's established in the law. Jesus sort of talks about the same thing in Matthew. So throughout the scripture, two witnesses are necessary uh, to testify, and especially to enact the death penalty. And what we see... And again, we're sort of in the, the midst of this unleashing of destruction upon the earth. The earth uh, can't say, "Well, whose testimony?" <laughs> you know, it's they're prophesying to them, but by prophesying to them, they're also witnessing their rejection. So it's you know, if we think of it in a judicial sense, the destruction we see later in the chapter is justified by the presence and testimony, the witness of these two witnesses. So we can think of witness again. You know, we all often go to the evangelistic side, which is, I think, is implied here, but there's also the judicial side of a witness, and I think, you know, to think two witnesses, I think both are being used in this chapter, that they are, you know, uh, how's John describe it, um, uh, the earth will, will rejoice over them, make merry, exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So I mean, they, they've been obviously prophesying judgment, and the, the people of the earth have hated it. Um, so there's that sense of witness, but uh, I think there's also this judicial sense. These people testify, um, just like we saw in, in chapter 6, the martyrs uh, crying out, you know, how long till these people judged? You know, you know, not for revenge on our sake, but that justice will be done. Can we say about these two witnesses? So they're prophetic figures like Elijah, Moses, John the Baptist. Um, you know the the fact that they're dressed in sackcloth and action, uh, dressed in sackcloth, you know, emphasizing um, mourning. Uh, you know, John the Baptist and prophets before him would put on sackcloth to emphasize their mourning at the surety of this coming judgment, the certainty of it. Um, Do we understand these as individuals or as corporate witnesses? Are these two people? Are these two communities?
1: die, and then when they're
0: raised up, it feels like there's more food. Yeah. And the fact that um, they're described, you know, the people across the earth are gazing on their dead bodies. I mean, that sort of seems difficult. Uh, you know, some people said, ah... Here we have CNN in Revelation, because everybody will see it on the news. Um, but I, 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 I'm like you, James. I don't see it as sort of, it, there seems to be a greater number than just two. Um, notice how their, their presence in the temple is described as, uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. How, how earlier in this book did we see John using lampstand? Lampstand as churches and uh, again sort of number two some people look back and say how many of those seven churches had an uncompromised witness? Two. Um, So is that you know what we're talking about is these two witnesses are those two witnesses who are refusing to compromise with this sinful world around them, refusing to uh, adjust their testimony. Uh, those are the faithful churches. Those are the faithful communities that are witnessing before a world that increasingly hates them. Yeah, Mike. Just
1: to throw something else in there, is like when you think of the Two, I mean, the two witnesses. I guess what comes to mind is Moses and, and Jesus. And you have this witness to the world before Christ is born. It's mostly through the nation of Israel. You have to do a poor job. And, uh, after Christ came, to church it is now in Israel and uh, remains to be seen. That, you know what. Our our judgment is going to be about how well we've done with our our testimony, but it could be a you know the two you know time before is measured before Christ and after Christ, so these are two epics, and now in the latter days, and so maybe it's it's just the the continuous testimony of God's goodness and greatness uh, before Christ came and then after Christ came. Just like Israel was looked down upon by the, you know, the heathen nations and, you know, mocked and everything, and so was the church.
0: And later in the book we'll see that this uh, new Jerusalem uh, clearly uh, envelops Jews and Gentiles alike and so you know we'll see that use of two later on in the book as well but you you mentioned um, the role of Christ and that's you know we've hit our time and that's what I really want us to to end this thinking about um, Christ and especially this week in which we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection Um, how do we see Christ's life mirrored in that of these witnesses? Okay. So they die and they they're raised again. Um, and you know the the you know you remember um, when the women went to the tomb. What happened when when they went to the tomb to, and the stone was rolled away? How'd they describe it? An earthquake. You know, you get there are lots of linguistic sort of words that pop up um, in the synoptic accounts of the resurrection John's employing here. Um, so Christ's death and resurrection, I mean, so if it's as if John's saying Christ's death and resurrection is mirrored in the life of the church. Um I mean think of all those passages where where Jesus was basically preparing his disciples for that very lifestyle. They've hated me. They're gonna hate you. They killed they're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill you. Um, and that sort of call to emulate Christ in Christ's path to the cross. Um, I, I was just really struck um, this week and sort of seeing, you know, just as we see in Christ, faithful witness, miraculous signs. Here we have faithful witness, you know, holding back holding back the rain, you know, turning water into blood, uh, you know, uh, just as, as Pharaoh called a death sentence upon the firstborn of Egypt, that's turned back upon Egypt. That same kind of uh, ironic reversal is, is, is in here. So you have that faithful witness, miraculous signs. Then you have this period of disgrace, being despised, death, uh, that humiliation Christ suffered on his path to the cross. A period of, of death... And resurrection, and then ultimately vindication. Um, and throughout the, the New Testament, um, when we have those pictures of Christ's second coming, I mean, it always is you know, it's the church victorious, you know, is how we often express it. It's this idea that the, the church is going to be vindicated. Um, The earth might despise it, might belittle it, might dismiss it, but in the end, it will be vindicated, just like Christ is, you know, he's despised, he's killed, he's raised up, and he is vindicated, and one day every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess, I mean, that's the ultimate vindication. Um, and we see that same thing being mirrored in Christ's church here. Um, These witnesses are following the path to the cross. uh, they're doing exactly what Jesus had said would be done. Um, so this is uh, Mark 13, verses 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved Um, and that seems to be the same message that John's giving us here Uh, the world hates us they hate this witness they hate this idea that there's a God who they need Um, they hate it and will seek to destroy the church and that witness like Peter,
1: you know, after Jesus, you know, tell him that he's going to die, Peter says, no, that's not a good
0: plan. <laughs> that is bad plan for church growth.
1: And, you know, you feel like, well, now Jesus did die and he rose again and, and he defeated the beast, right? And it seems like the path of, that he's chosen for how we're supposed to defeat the beast is similar. In the sense that we're, instead of you know, okay, now East defeated the beast, and and so you know we're going to you know just triumph or whatever. We we get the same basic formula for you know defeat, which is to lay down our
0: sort of post. Yeah, it's the picture they gave us of Christ earlier the lion of the tribe of judah reigns as a slain lamb that is not you know you know the the lion has come to his rule by laying down his life and spilling his blood uh, so we don't have to, and but that's not the picture. That's not the picture Christ gives us in the Gospels, and it's not the picture I think John's giving us here. So, and I, which is why I want to emphasize, or why I like this idea of the inner and outer. How we are secure in our heavenly citizenship now, even though we live in the midst of this other city that that despises us, seeks to put us to death. Um, that is. That's the call of the Christian life. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, me. No, no, the other Stephen. <laughs> Stoned for testifying.
1: They him,
0: they hated this message, um, and again, it's not the the world doesn't hate us because we're hateable. We should be hateable people. They should hate us because our message, um, and our message is the gospel, <laughs> and our message is uh, people need a a temple. Um, they need a place where their sins are covered. They need a place uh, where something, in this case someone, is sacrificed on their behalf. They need the temple of Christ's body. That is what the world needs. Um, but the world rejects Christ and rejects us for bringing that message. And so um, as we close, uh, you know, I, I, again, I was really just struck by how fitting we came to this passage Easter week. Um, because the path of the church is the path of Christ. Death, but then, and in, in we've been talking about in our Matthew Bible study how the disciples always sort of latch on to the word death. <laughs> no, that can't happen, but Jesus always couples it with... And I'll, three days later, I'll rise again. Um, the The promise of resurrection, um, we, you know, I think, as James says, like we're like Peter. We're like, mm, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Isn't there a plan that doesn't involve me witnessing to my death? <laughs> What's plan B? But I think we miss the, the promise of resurrection and vindication that we see here. That... These faithful witnesses, though, trampled on for a short time. One, they're allowed to faithfully witness for a much longer time than they're trampled under. Uh, so it's uh, short the time of their defeat and, and, and defilement. Um, but that then there's this ultimate being lifted up in a cloud, and the world being terrified of God, again, through these witnesses. And it's the way that, again, we, uh, as the church, participate in the last judgment. Um, We're not onlookers. We're participants in it. And we're participants in it by faithfully witnessing to the world and... uh, If they don't respond, if they don't repent, then we are bringing judgment upon them. We are facilitating uh, the ultimate end. Uh, Let me close uh, in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for the things we celebrate this week. Thank you for the path to the cross. A path that caused Jesus to weep tears of blood because of its difficulty. That he had to drink the cup of your wrath that we deserved. That he had to feel the pain, the judicial uh, sentence as a righteous man that we, as sinful people, rightly deserved. We thank you for what that death accomplished. But we rejoice even more that you raised your son to newness of life, that you gave him new life, he who had been in the bowels of death for three days. That is our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, And our hope is in you, Lord God, that though the earth can, the forces of this world can attack and kill our bodies, we trust in you who hold both body and soul secure. And as you sh- show us here in pictures for our imagination, our heavenly citizenship our presence in this temple is so secure it can be measured out that your people can be numbered not to emphasize the finiteness of it that it's a small number but to emphasize the certainty of it that you call us each by name that you see us each through the blood of Christ and that you will raise us each up individually and corporately as your church. Lord God, help us be faithful witnesses in this world that so often hates us. Help us to bring you the message of the cross and the resurrection to the world. We ask it in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.